Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to tell you a story from 1981, widely known as the Ketty Cabin Murders. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive on in. We would like to give a brief warning before jumping into this episode as it deals with violent acts against young children. We will not be going into extreme detail outside of what is necessary to get the story out there. We would advise listener caution for this episode. Glenna Sue Sharp, who went by Sue, was a 36-year-old mother of five children. Her five children were John, who was 15, Sheila, who was 14, Tina, who was 12, Ricky, who was 10, and Greg, who was five. Sue moved the family from Quincy, Connecticut to Ketty, California in the late 1980s to stay in a two-bedroom cabin at the Ketty Resort. The family had moved here shortly after Sue had escaped an abusive marriage. The family was not very well off, they were very poor, and struggling for money. Ketty, California is a super small town, and a census in 2000 showed that only 96 people were currently residing there. It was one of those towns that we always talk about where the doors and the windows were always left unlocked and kids were allowed to wander on their own until as late as they wanted. There really were no concerns for safety in this small town. That was until April 11th, 1981, when a horrific crime occurred in cabin 28. On the night of April 11th, Rick and Greg had their friend Justin Smart Eason stay the night. Sheila would be staying the night at her friend's cabin, number 27, just next door, and Tina was also spending the evening at the same cabin watching TV. Are all the cabins just right next to each other in like a little community or... It was kind of like a subdivision where all the houses were next to each other and it was in a woods, but they weren't like on top of each other. They were just close enough that you could walk between the houses. Tina returned home around 10 p.m. that night and John and his friend Dana Wingate had hitchhiked to a party in a nearby town. They hitchhiked to a party? They, yeah, they, that's what it said everywhere is they hitchhiked. I don't know if they're just referring to them getting a ride from a friend as hitchhiking or if they're actually meaning they stood on the side of the road with their thumbs up and hitchhiked with somebody. They arrived home sometime between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. that evening, which is a really wide range of time, but that's supposedly when they left the party is around that time, so anywhere between those times is when they arrived home. Overall, it was a pretty normal evening for the family. To recap, is everybody in the family home now? No. Who's all home at this point? Everyone but Sheila. So Sue is home, John is home, John's friend Dana is home, Tina is home now, she got home around 10, Ricky and Greg are home, and their friend Justin. So the only person that's not home is 14-year-old Sheila. And then there were two friends at the house. And yep, two friends, Dana and Justin. Okay, I'm caught up. Sheila returned home on the morning of April 12th, around 7.45 in the morning, and found the bodies of Sue Sharp, John Sharp, and Dana. So, she found her mom and then her brother and his friend murdered? Yes. 
She opened the door and smelled a terrible odor. She said that when she first walked into the living room, it took her a moment to comprehend what her eyes were seeing, which I think is fair. This poor girl's going to need all the therapy. Oh, yeah. She ran out of the home screaming back to cabin 27, where she had stayed the night before, to the Seabolt home, and they were able to help her from there. The father, James Sr., went over to cabin 28 to check on the younger boys and found Ricky and Greg and their friend Justin asleep and safe in the cabin. The friend Justin, was he related to the person, the family that um, Sheila had been staying with? Or is this another friend, like another family? This was another family. Okay. James Sr. brought Ricky, Greg, and Justin out of the home through a window in the bedroom so that they wouldn't have to see the horrifying scene in the living room. That was a good move. Oh, absolutely. Tina, however, was nowhere to be found. The Seabolts did not own a phone, so someone from the home ran to the lodge to have the owner of the Ketty Resort named Jan Albin call 911. Dispatch received a call of a possible homicide in cabin 28 at 8.05 a.m. Investigators were called within an hour of Sheila discovering the bodies of her family. The first to arrive to the scene was Deputy Hank Clement, who reported that there was blood all over the entire house. The amount of blood throughout the house indicated that the bodies of the victims had been moved and rearranged into the positions they were found in after their deaths. Where were they found? John was found closest to the front door, face up, covered in blood, and his hands bound with medical tape and his ankles bound with electrical wire. It is interesting that they use two different types of bindings. And both of those and the electrical wire was actually from appliances in the home that they had taken. And the medical tape that they were using was something that they believed that the killers brought with them. Oh, so it's likely that maybe they ran out of their tape and had to find something else in the home. And by medical tape, is it like that little white tape that you can use? Yes, the little white tape. John's throat had been slit. Dana was found on the floor right beside him, lying on his stomach. His head showed signs of having been bashed in with a blunt object, and he was laying on a pillow. His cause of death was manual strangulation. Dana's ankles were also tied with electrical wire, and it was connected to the wire on John's ankles, so it tied the two bodies together. Sue's body had been partially covered with a yellow blanket. She was naked from the waist down and had been gagged with a bandana and her own underwear and had been secured with medical tape over her mouth. And it had been secured with medical tape over her mouth. Her injuries showed signs of a struggle, and she had an imprint on the side of her head of an 880 pellet gun. She had also died from her throat being slit. So the only person who died differently was Dana. Yes. So John and Sue were, had both died from their throats being slit, and Dana had died from strangulation. All of the victims had suffered blunt force trauma from a hammer, and they all had multiple stab wounds. A bent steak knife was found on the floor of the living room, and a bloody butcher knife and claw hammer were found on a small table near the kitchen. The house had blood everywhere, all over the doors and walls, and also in Tina Sharp's bed. So overall, what I'm gathering is this was pretty violent. Yeah, they all talk about how it was absolutely terrible. There was blood on like the staircases and the handrails and all of the doors and just everywhere well and at this point we have them binding like stabbing did they shoot the gun at all or was it just 
used as a like a club it was just used as a club it was not actually shot oh my gosh it almost makes you wonder if there were more than one murderers in this scenario which is a theory that all investigators have decided that there was most likely more than two people involved i can see that because typically in cases like this if it's one person everybody's killed or attacked in the same manner not quite all over the place like this one is especially with subduing that many people. And we still don't know where Tina is? Correct. Tina is nowhere to be found at this point. Sheriff Doug Thomas and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, were struggling to find a motive for the murders, and they were really showing to be kind of random. There were no signs of forced entry, but they were able to find an unidentified fingerprint on the handrail for the back stairs. All of the lights had been turned off, the drapes were closed, and the phone was left off the hook. A woman and her boyfriend, who were living in the cabin next door, reported that they had heard muffled screams around 1.30 in the morning, but they couldn't decide what it was, so they just ignored it and went back to bed. They heard muffled screams, but also couldn't identify what the sound was? I think they couldn't decide if it was, like, something real or if it was something, like, maybe playful or a movie. I I don't really know. They just said that they heard it, couldn't decide what it really was, and went back to bed. I was going to say, it makes you wonder how, do you know how close their cabin was to? I don't know how close their cabin was, no. Because that seems like all, you would think the commotion would make a lot of sound, which I'm also surprised that the boys, the younger boys never woke up or anything. Yeah. That's kind of what confuses me, is how the three young boys being in the home didn't wake up to it. Because it's a, I can't imagine it was that big if it's just a small cabin. I was going to say, because you said they didn't have a lot of money. Further along in the investigation, Justin Smart came forward and actually admitted that he had seen Sue with two men in the house that night. Which was, he was one of the boys that was, that supposedly slept through the whole thing. The friend of the... Younger boys, correct? Correct. He reported that one of the men had long hair, glasses, and a mustache, and the other one had short hair with no facial hair and glasses. Justin also told the police that he did see one of the men with a hammer. So I'm going to post a picture on our social media of the sketch that they have of these guys based on what Justin was able to tell them. I wonder, too, how, how old was Justin? So Justin was actually 12, so he was just a little bit older than Ricky. Sheriff Thomas actually resigned from the murder investigation about three months in and started working for the Sacramento Department of Justice. Nothing really happened with the case until about three years later, and when on the third anniversary of the murders, there was an anonymous call that was called in where the caller said that they had found a skull and they believed that the skull was that of Tina Sharps. So they called in and just said, hey, I found a skull and it's this girl's. Yes. Not typically easy to identify somebody by just looking at their skull, I wouldn't believe. Unless, you know, you're trained in it. Yep. And he was just, he was anonymous. He just said, hey, by the way, I found this skull. I'm pretty sure it belongs to Tina Sharp. And I don't know if the reason that he believed that it belonged to Tina Sharp was because that was a body that had been missing for a long time. I mean, she was younger, so it would have been that of a smaller child. So I don't know if he saw it and was like, this has to be like a younger person's skull and 
since it was not that far away. I only read that it was 50 miles away, 60 miles away, and 80 miles away. I tried to look it up, but it was found in Butte County, and depending on where it was found in Butte County, it could have been any amount of miles away. Next to the remains, they also found a blue nylon jacket, a child's blanket, and a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. That's a little connection there. Yeah, they and they were able to determine that it actually was the remains of Tina Sharp. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Moving on to the suspects, there really only ever was one suspect that they looked at in connection to this case, and that was Marty Smart, the stepfather of Justin Smart. He was married to Marilyn Smart, and Marty was reported to be an abusive husband, and it was also reported that Sue Sharp was supposedly counseling and helping Marilyn on her marriage and trying to kind of just connect with her because Sue had also been in an abusive relationship. To that, it sounds like to me that the two moms probably just were connecting through their kids and then probably talked a little bit and she wanted to help her out with whatever she could because she had had some similar experiences, maybe. Yeah, that's kind of my assumption is she was just kind of trying to just be there for her and make sure that she was safe. Marty apparently found out about this and he, quote, went ballistic when he found out that Sue was helping Marilyn with the marriage. They believed that Marty was involved in the murders and that he had just been mad that Sue was trying to help Marilyn maybe even escape the marriage. And so he and his roommate, John Bo Bobody, who went by Bo, which was Marty's roommate, they think that the two of them kind of conspired on this crime and did it together. Bo was actually an ex-con, and he'd had some ties to other criminals in the area, and they think that maybe they were also, it was kind of like a team effort, because they do think that more than two people were involved in the killings. What had Bo been convicted for? I'm not sure. I believe it was violent acts, um, from what I could find. Marilyn did come forward and say that she didn't believe that Sheriff Thomas and Marty were good friends, but... I mean, if they were in cahoots with something or if Bo was somehow still involved with 
criminal activity. Maybe they had something going on under the table and Marty was just kind of hiding his friendship with Sheriff Thomas from Maryland. Sheriff Thomas actually came forward about the allegations of his friendship with Marty Smart and said, quote, there was no shortage of suspects, but suddenly now everybody 35 years or so later have all figured out what happened and that all of the investigating officers were corrupt. It's laughable is what it is. Martin Smart was not a friend of mine. At one point, he and his wife were having marital problems and they came to my office when I was sheriff and wanted me to counsel them, end quote. And I was watching the BuzzFeed Unsolved about this case and they talked about how funny it is that it's such a small town where apparently when you need counseling for your marriage, you go to the sheriff instead of a counselor. That is very odd. Who does, like, that's not something, unless she's trying to actually get him in trouble for the abuse, that's an odd move to make, but maybe there were just no other resources. Or maybe it just didn't happen and Sheriff Thomas just came up with it. Oh. That's an option, too. I feel like in small towns, though, when situations like this are happening, a lot of times people will go to, especially in, like, the 1980s, I think, people would be more prone to go to, like, a pastor or a priest or not the sheriff. It was a small town, but if the sheriff's is saying that he didn't have a relationship with the Smart family, then it seems weird that the family would just go to him and talk about it. The Sharps' home, cabin 28, was actually torn down in 2004. So the remains, I believe, are still there of the home. They were a few years ago when the BuzzFeed Unsolved team went there. So I guess if you want to go and check it out, you can. The case was then reopened in 2013 to re-examine the evidence by Sheriff Greg Hagwood, who is the current sheriff in Ketty, and investigator Mike Gamberg. Did they look closer into Marty? Because I feel like we need to look into him at least to either rule him in or out. Oh, yeah. That's where this is going. Greg and Mike both had personal connections to the victims of the murders. They had actually gone to school with the victims. So they were pretty determined to solve this case. And regarding the police cover-up being a part of the case, Greg actually said, quote, it has brought to light some amazing timelines, histories, and what some may call coincidence. Others may look at it more accusingly. I don't put anything outside the realm of possibility, end quote. That sounds like he has an opinion. Oh, yeah. I absolutely took that as I have an opinion. I just can't actually say it right now. Mm -hmm. So Mike and Sheriff Greg Hagwood did their due diligence. They searched through all of the evidence that was still there. There was still the evidence from the home. So the carpet that was in the home had actually been torn out and was in storage somewhere. There was freezers that still had things in it one of the freezers however malfunctioned and so they actually lost some of the evidence that was supposedly being preserved in this freezer of course which is where that coincidence comes in out mike found evidence so a few of the new developments that they found there there's four so the first one is mike found an found a box of evidence that had pretty much just been shoved aside And in that box, one of the things he found was a letter that Marty wrote to his wife, Marilyn, that was written shortly after the murders. And Marilyn said that she doesn't remember receiving the letter, but she does say that it looks like Marty's handwriting. The letter said, quote, I've paid the price for your love. And now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? End quote. I don't know. I'm just not feeling like that's what she wanted. I agree. I don't think that she wanted a bunch of people to be dead. Also seems like a solid way to lose your wife. 
also seems like a solid confession. That is true. The other thing found in the box was the anonymous call that tipped off the location of Tina's skull. He's working on comparing the audio of the call to the voices of the suspects, but when the tape actually came through to the police, it was never voice analyzed or even listened to. It was still sealed from when the dispatch sent it over. Yeah, that seems like a poor move on their part. Why wouldn't you follow that up? Because if someone knows where the remains of this missing person is... It's pretty suspicious. Yeah, and it's just another place where the sheriff's department dropped the ball at the time. One of the things I haven't even talked about is how it was one of those cases where they didn't really close the place down. The scene was contaminated by people that wanted to come and see and look. And why you would want to go and see and look at that, I don't know. But that was another issue that they had was that it wasn't completely closed off. I was wondering about that and if they looked for other evidence because with something that was that a a crime that was that extensive and that violent, you would think that there might be some type of DNA from the culprits in there through hair, sweat, or maybe cut themselves. They actually did say that there was no signs of any blood from any other person other than the victims. So they said that whoever did it was wearing gloves and was very careful. The only thing that they had found was that fingerprint on the back stair rail. And did they follow up with that at all? Do we know? They just said that it was unidentified at the time. I just wonder if there's a way that they could have compared that to Marty's fingerprints, possibly. Well, Because you said they probably wore gloves, but if there's a fingerprint, where would that come from? At some point, one of them must not have had gloves on or something. It also just kind of really makes you question the sheriff's department even more at the time. Sheriff Hagwood said in regards to the anonymous call about the location of Tina's skull, quote, why that sat in a sealed evidence envelope never opened, I don't have the answer to that, but we have it now, end quote. And I really just got to give some credit to Sheriff Hagwood and Mike, like, good for you for reopening this and searching high and low to get an answer and some closure for the family, especially because there's still Sheila and Ricky and Greg are still alive and looking for answers as to what happened to their family. Another thing that came forward when they were doing their research and when they were continuing the investigation is that Mike ended up talking to a therapist that Marty had in Reno, Nevada, where he moved shortly after the murders. And the therapist told Gamberg that Marty had confessed to the murders in a therapy session in May of 1981, saying, quote, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys end quote. Did he report this? Yeah, he did. Did the sheriff's department do anything at the time? The answer to that is no. So this would have been about a month after the murders when he reported it. So that means that Sheriff Thomas still would have been on the case and would have just brushed this confession under the rug. You know, and this is reminding me of the John Bonet case when Michael Vale was talking about Gary Oliva confessing. He said he never heard any follow-up from the cops And it's like, why wouldn't you follow something like that up? It's just, the ball gets dropped in so many different places. And I have to believe that there are some cases where it's not the ball getting dropped, but the police actually know something more than what we know. But in this case, it's just like, what what else do you need? The therapist actually told Mike, they're like, I'm even surprised that the investigators didn't use the confession against Marty and didn't contact me again after I told them about it. Because a therapist is somebody that they do, they'll use you in court if needed. Mm -hmm. The other thing was that 
a steel blue handled claw hammer had been found in a dried up pond that was nearby when he was using a metal detector in Ketty. He as in? Just a random man. Oh, okay. Yeah. The hammer matched the description of the one that Marty had told investigators that he had lost. As of November 2016, the hammer was being tested for DNA evidence as a possible murder weapon. But they don't know for sure if... But they haven't released yet if that has anything to do with the murders. They have not come forward, though, as to whether or not there was any DNA found on there or if it was actually connected to the murders. Both Martin Smart and Bo Bobity are now deceased, and there's new DNA evidence that is pointing investigators to other suspects who may have also had a hand in the murders and that are still actually alive. I kind of wonder if that DNA evidence was found on that hammer, maybe, that they had found, because this was released later in 2016 after the... Or if maybe they had retested any other evidence or i don't know do you know if they exhumed any of the bodies or anything like that i don't believe they did i didn't read that anywhere they did find dna on a strip of white medical tape that had been found on the floor near sue's body and that dna is a match of a known living suspect so they know who it is and haven't released it is that what that means yes So there's some other suspect out there that they haven't released yet. I don't know who that is because the only suspects that you can really find anything about are Marty Smart and John Bo Bobity. Sheriff Hagwood actually came forward and said, quote, It's my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in the totality of the crime, the disposal of the evidence, and the abduction of the little girl. We're convinced that there are a handful of people that fit those roles who are still alive, end quote. A handful? Yeah, I read somewhere, too, that they think it might have been, like, a gang or the mafia somehow involved. Like a mob hit? Yeah, like something like that, which still doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to why the younger kids were left alive. Well, maybe at some point they have a cutoff. Yeah. That's what keeps bringing me back to Marty is the fact that those boys were okay and Justin was in the room. It just, I think, really points to it. But definitely with a group of people, I can see because of the different things and then It's odd that they took Tina somewhere. I agree. And she was, I couldn't find, I kept searching and searching to see how long she'd actually been dead for. Because if she had been dead for all three years or if she'd been kept alive for some period of time and then murdered, I couldn't find that. Mike and Sheriff Greg believe that Marty and Bo were most likely involved in the crime in some way as accomplices, either taking part in the murders themselves or helping with the cleanup afterwards. Sheriff Hegwood said, Quote, there are people locally who know more than what they've said, and I believe we've identified some of them, and we know who they are, and we know where they are, and I have every confidence that they either participated after the fact or they have firsthand information. It's obviously a worthwhile pursuit. There is not an expiration date on homicides, and to the extent that we have surviving siblings and family members, it is our fundamental obligation to them to understand who did this and why. End quote. Anyone with information is asked to call the Plumas County Sheriff's Office at 538-283-6360. And at the request of Plumas County, secret, the secret witness has posted a $5,000 reward for information leading to arrest and prosecution. Their number is 775-322-4900. Tips can also be left online at www.secretwitness.com. Or texted to 847-411, keyword SW. 
You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.